So we're kicking off a new teaching series going to run over the next four weeks as we journey towards Easter. It is called The Path to Fruitfulness and hopefully you like the design here with all sorts of lovely fruit emerging. Um, so we're going to be in John 15. Um, now we're following on from the James series. I don't know about you, but I found the James series hugely challenging, um, but beautiful to walk through a letter written by the brother of Jesus. And a summary of the teaching of the book of James would be that faithfulness leads to fruitfulness. James says that faith without deeds is dead, right? But living faith, living faith leads to abundance. It leads to fruitfulness. And that's what we're longing for in a season of lack, in a challenging time right now. We're longing for fruitfulness and we know that the path to fruitfulness begins with faithfulness. And this is really the essence of John 15. So John 15 and James almost do that. So let's read John 15 together. As Jesus says to his disciples, and he would say it to us 2,000 years or so later, he says, I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, pretty simple. You're the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen, listen to the language. It's remain in me and I'll remain in you, but make sure you remain in me. In other words, it's connection to Jesus that leads us towards fruitfulness, abundant living. But Jesus also says the opposite is true, that faithlessness, in other words, not being connected to Jesus leads towards emptiness. He says no branch can bear fruit by itself, apart from me. In other words, just operating in your own strength. You're not going to really accomplish much in terms of the kingdom of God. And we probably all know this to be true. We've all got painful experience of this. When we disconnect ourselves from the vine, we begin to experience emptiness. Now, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm just going to project on you how I'm doing right now, but I'm guessing others are in the same boat. I feel really empty. I feel physically exhausted. That's probably homeschooling. I feel lonely. I'm really missing my friends. I feel spiritually pretty empty at times too. In other words, this season for me hasn't been marked out by abundance. It's been marked out by lack. This has felt like a wilderness experience, but I'm really hungry to be filled with the presence of God. This feels like a crossroads moment for me, but maybe for many others too. Maybe even for the church in this nation, there's a crossroads, right? And there's a path that leads leads to fruitfulness, abundance, and there's a path that leads to a greater measure of emptiness. And this isn't about coming out of lockdown, right? This is far more than that. We could come out of lockdown and remain empty on the inside, or we could press into Jesus and begin to experience abundance. Now, there is a key passage in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 28, which really marks out this crossroads. This is one of the defining texts for the nation of Israel. And we're going to read a little section of it together. So Deuteronomy 28, this is basically God saying obedience is going to lead to abundance, right? Disobedience is going to lead towards emptiness. He says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Now, the context for this is, right, 
The nation of Israel have been liberated from slavery in Egypt. They're journeying through the wilderness. They have this climactic moment at Mount Sinai where they enter into covenant relationship with God. And God essentially says, like, if we remain connected, if you are connected to the vine, you're going to experience abundance. And in Deuteronomy 28, God just names what the abundance will look like. You'll be blessed at home and you'll be blessed at work and the land will be blessed and the crops will experience blessing. You're going to live with abundance. And it's Sounds amazing. It's like, bring it on. And then he says, but, so let's read this, verse 15. He says, but, or however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. In other words, this will be the absence of blessing and begins to outline what the absence of blessing will look like. Everything will be a struggle and it's just going to be so challenging and the ultimate sign of the curse would be the curse of exile, being ruled over by a foreign nation. And we know that's exactly what happens as the people walk away from God and end up in exile in Babylon. But let me just read you one of the like kind of like small details in that passage from verse 13 one of the signs of the absence of blessing will be that there's no wine. And some of you will be thinking, preach. I, I completely agree when there's no wine, it's, it's hard to experience blessing. Um, God says, you will plant vineyards and you'll cultivate them, but you'll not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. In other words, the absence of wine will speak of how much of a struggle life is, the absence of God's blessing and favor. Now we're going to come back to that because it's key to understanding a passage we're going to come to. And then you've got this conclusion in Deuteronomy 30. This is the crossroads moment, right? And I believe we're at this kind of crossroads. God says, now what I'm commanding you today, it's not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. In other words, this isn't rocket science. That would be the message translation or the Pete's version of the message translation. This isn't rocket science. See, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. And then he makes it really straightforward. Choose life if I were you. Like there's life and prosperity, death and destruction. Just my simple advice, like choose life. Choose prosperity so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land. Okay, so that's me just teeing up the passage I want to explore today, which is the famous story of Jesus turning water into wine. This is a story of how empty vessels get filled and lead towards abundance, which is basically you and me right now, right? Feeling exhausted at the end of ourselves, feeling really empty, but there is a path that leads to fruitfulness, and we're going to discover something of it in this passage of this incredible miracle. And by the way, in the book of John, this is the first of the signs, the first of the miracles that reveal the glory of God. In other words, there's something particularly significant about this first miracle. You also need to know about John's gospel. It's different to Matthew, Mark and Luke. They're known as the synoptic gospels. In other words, they're eyewitness accounts where these writers basically say, Jesus did this, he said that, he did this, just sort of laying out the life and ministry of Jesus. John, written much later, is like a theological retelling of the story where he uses images and metaphors um, to unpack what's going on. In other words, John is filled with kind of symbolic Jewish phrases that we need to unpack. Okay, so let's start. This is John 2. 
Amazing story, I love this story. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now let's just pause there. We've already had two massive phrases that we need to unpack. First one then, on the third day. So this, you know, biography of Jesus written towards the end of the first century. In other words, the language of the third day carried incredible weight. They'd been sort of worshipping Jesus, telling the story of his resurrection for decades, right? They had their own worship songs, the equivalent of, and on the third, at break of dawn, the son of hair. They probably did it in a lower pitch. They probably did it. Thank you. There's more where that came from. More where that came from. Um, they had the equivalent of those worship songs celebrating like on the third day, everything changed. So in this text, when John says on the third day, that's like a flag of like, oh my goodness, like maybe new life is about to break in. Like maybe this is like an opportunity towards new creation, towards incredible fruitfulness. So on the third day is the first phrase that we need to take note of. Second one, when the wine was gone, right? Now I've already mentioned Deuteronomy 28 um, through to Deuteronomy 30, but the absence of wine spoke of the absence of God's favor and blessing. In other words, the absence of his presence. In other words, here in John 2, in the opening verses, you've got a crossroads, right? Jesus is basically saying something's about to happen now and you're going to see there's a crossroads. One way is leading towards abundance, like new life, and the other way is leading towards emptiness. And I'm going to give you the key how to move towards abundance, right? No wine, and yet Jesus says on the third day, or, or John writes, on the third day, something's about to change. So pick up verse four. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. This isn't the moment where I launch my ministry. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And remember Deuteronomy 28. If you obey my commands, it will lead towards abundance. Faithfulness will lead towards fruitfulness. So Jesus' mum basically says, look, I know the story. Like, just do whatever he tells you to do. Now, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so that they will be filled to the brim. Now, remember, this sign is loaded with symbolism and imagery. So the water jars represent the Jewish law, the Torah, right? But notice that the jars are empty. In other words, the symbolism points to the fact that, that they haven't obeyed the Torah and it's led to a season of struggle. It's led to a season of emptiness where there is no wine. Now, just to rub your faces in this even further, let me just show you some of the prophetic literature from the Old Testament. You know, underlining this point, like disobedience leads to no wine, a struggle. Jeremiah chapter eight, God says, I will take away their harvest. There will be no grapes on the vine, there'll be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I've given them will be taken away. Isaiah 5, a 10-acre vineyard, a large vineyard, will produce only a bath of wine. Tragic. You'd be in grief. A home of seed will yield only an ether of grain. Keeps going. Joel chapter 1, prophet after prophet, saying the same thing. The fields are ruined. This is a sign of exile, of life without God. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. And if that wasn't bad enough, the new wine is dried up too. 
The olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up. The fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. You, you get the point. It's pretty clear, right? Okay, so fast forward then to the first century, the time of Jesus. They were in exile, slavery in Babylon. They then come back to Jerusalem, but no, they're still being ruled over by the superpower of the day, the Roman Empire. In other words, they weren't free to be the people they were created by God to be. So here's the context of the first century. It was like being at a wedding without wine, right? They're back in their land, but the presence of God symbolized by the wine, it's not with them. They should be parching, but they're kind of grieving. This, this isn't right. Side point, wouldn't it be tragic if we regathered after lockdown, um, and we're hoping to regather soon, but fast forward to maybe June, who knows quite when, when all restrictions are lifted and we can gather in the church without masks, without two meter distance, and we can sing all of that. Imagine if we regathered and it was amazing, but the presence of God wasn't there. Like, wouldn't that be terrifying and wouldn't that be tragic? And often that's the path we go. We do all the outward stuff, but the presence of God isn't there. That was like the first century context that Jesus is stepping into. It's like a wedding without wine. And yet these same prophets that basically said exile, you know, disobedience will lead to sort of this struggle. It'll be like a wilderness experience. They also prophesy that one day a Messiah will come and the wine will begin to flow. Listen to these words, Amos 9, the days are coming, that's a prophecy to the end times, to the arrival of the Messiah, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. In other words, the one sowing will be overtaken by the one reaping because there's just so much abundance. New wine, listen to this, will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. And I'll bring my people Israel back from exile. They, they will rebuild um, the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. So they were holding on to this prophecy that this might be a struggle, but one day the wine is going to flow and there will be a party to end all parties. Okay, so back to John chapter 2. Um, Jesus' mom has said, look, do whatever he says. Like, he's got a really good track record. Um, Fill the jars with water, Jesus said. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, and now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, almost certainly publicly, now just imagine then you're one of the servants. You know the backstory. You know that these massive jars are for ceremonial washing. In other words, dirty water normally lives in these jars. And then you filled it with water, but you know there's all sorts of dirt and scum in there. And then you've poured it into smaller jars and one of them takes it over to the master and pours him a cup and he must have been trembling and the master drinks it. And then he just looks for the bridegroom and is like, over here, mate. Just imagine the servants like peeking around the corner thinking, this is life or death for us. Like, we don't know what's going to happen, but this could be the end of our job. This could be the end of our life. Like, what is going on? So he calls the bridegroom over and says, everyone, like the normal thing to do, but this isn't normal, 
so they'd have been panicking. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests, guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. Like, how amazing is this? There's so much I love about this. One of the things I love is that like, the disciples and the servants know that Jesus is the source of the miracle, right? But the master of the banquet, he thinks it's the bridegroom that's been so intentional and just been extravagant and generous and saved the best wine till last. In other words, for the bridegroom, this could have been a moment of you know, shame. He could have been mortified, humiliated publicly. But Jesus steps in and dignity is restored. Like that's the gospel in miniature right there. Like shame covered and we're led towards dignity in the presence of Jesus like I love that Jesus is basically saying like this is a new time like I'm restoring the covenant the wine is going to begin to flow like how much was it It it's like gallons and gallons and gallons of the best wine for the feast for the wedding feast to enjoy like Jesus saying that comes about through me it's possible to know blessing right now because the Torah giver God himself that's me is amongst you in other words, emptiness, when brought towards Jesus, ends up with fullness. So if you're feeling really empty right now, here's my encouragement. Bring the empty jars towards Jesus. He fills empty things. Now let's get practical then. So how do we remain in the vine? How do we abide in the vine? Now obviously it's prayer. It's scripture reading. It's spiritual practices like silence and solitude and Sabbath, dot, dot, dot. I just want to name one really practical thing you can do, uh, maybe today or this week, which is to ask God, what is your soul craving to hear right now? Maybe ask yourself that question. So I, I went on a retreat this last week. And I, I was having sort of my quiet time in the morning. Um, and normally when I pray, I use this simple tool. Some of you will have seen it before. Um, basically, I spell out the word pray and it starts with praise. And then I just begin to sort of like name all the things I'm grateful to God for. All of the, the areas where I see his kingdom at work and celebrating like what's happening in my family and dot, dot, dot. I just give God praise for all the stuff that I see happening um, of his kingdom in the world around me. Then I repent. Um, and I'm not going to write down what I actually repent of. But um, essentially, I, be I begin to say, God, this is where I've actually walked away from you. And I want to bring before you some of my disordered desires and some of my anxious thoughts. Repentance, remember, meaning to turn around. I literally want to turn towards you in these areas. And I just begin to write that stuff down. Then I begin to ask God, you know, buy everything or do everything with prayer and petition, present your request to God. That's what I do. I just, I write down the stuff that I, I want to ask God for. And then the final thing is yield. Um, and that's the bit where I say, God, what do you want to say over me as I begin this day? I've brought before you praise and repentance. I've brought before you my petitions. I've asked you, but, but now I'm just going to stop because prayer is a two-way conversation. Like, I'm going to yield... And, and just say, what do you want to say? So I got to the point in my quiet time where I was like about to yield. And then I thought, what would I love to hear God say over me? What would I love to hear God say over, over me? This is what came to mind, right? And this is really embarrassing. I'm being vulnerable right now because I feel slightly embarrassed by this. But like, I sensed like what my soul was craving to hear was God say, Pete, you've been heroic in this season. Pete, you've been 
heroic in this season, right? Um, and I looked up the word hero on my phone. Obviously, I know what a hero is, but like, what does it actually mean? What's the root of the word? And it literally means to be admired for your courage. And I was like, that, that's actually what my soul craves to hear right now. Like, that God thinks I've dealt with this season with courage, right? And, and I was aware, like, that was so much of my ego involved, you know, dot, dot, dot. So I then thought, that's what I longed to hear. And then I was still before God. Like, Lord, what do you want to say over me? And I felt God say, I admire you, Pete, for your courage. And I was like, immediately, as soon as I heard those words, it wasn't an audible voice, just this inner sense, immediately I pushed it back. And I basically said, God, I know that's not you. I know that's just my ego, because you wouldn't say that over me. And I was still again, Lord, what do you want to say? And I felt God say, I admire you for your courage. I said, God, no, 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 I know that's me speaking because you would never say that over me. So I was still again. And all I heard was, I admire you for your courage. And then immediately I was reminded of the story of Gideon. Right now, Gideon, um, in the context of this story where he's called by God, um, he was threshing wheat in a wine press. A wine press was like a hole in the ground where you'd stamp on the grapes, right? Um, But to thresh wheat, you need the wind. You need the currents of the wind to blow away the chaff. So when you're in a hole in the ground, there is no wind, so you can't really do the job. So why is he um, threshing wheat in a wine press? And the answer is because he's feeling afraid and he's hiding and he's really frightened. And God speaks to him whilst he's in the wine press and says, rise, mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. And this is a reminder of that story. I was just reminded, oh God, like you do speak those kinds of words over you, over people. And the thing my soul craves to hear right now, that is the kind of thing you'd speak over me. Like, Pete, I admire you for your courage and honestly in that moment I just I just felt the presence of God flush in like Lord you do want to speak a word of life and a word of affirmation and a word that nourishes my soul I feel empty that's what I'm longing to hear but I'm longing to hear it from you and then God speaks and life breaks in you know nature abhors a vacuum right when you're empty you will get filled When the soul longs to hear something, the soul will go in search of that voice, right? And and I knew, I've I've got a choice right now. It feels like a crossroads. I could either bring that insecurity, all my ego and fragility, I could bring it to God, or I could take that longing and I could take it to my colleagues at work. I could take it to my family. I could take it to my friends. I could behave in such a way that they would think is courageous. And then I might get the affirmation, maybe even devotion that I'm longing for, but that might feed the ego, but it won't nurture my soul. It certainly won't lead towards fruitfulness and abundance. And this moment of encounter with God, basically heard his voice and his presence rushed in. I want to ask you the question, like, what are you longing to hear right now? What is your soul searching for, longing to hear? You could take that to any you know, number of places, but what if you take it to God himself and allow him to speak that word over your soul? It will lead to life. It will lead to fullness. What do you long to hear right now? Let me close with this story. 
Um, this is Andrew Garfield. You might recognize him. Brilliant actor. Um, the film that he was in, this is a couple of years ago, was Silence. Some of you might have seen it. It's the story of these two Jesuit priests that take the gospel to unreached people groups in Japan. And they experience incredible hardship as they carry the gospel um, to these people groups. Um, but as part of preparation for the film, I guess, you know, as a method actor, Andrew Garfield was thinking, well, if I'm going to be playing this Jesuit priest, I want to understand the mindset of a Jesuit priest. I want to understand, like, what a Jesuit priest was longing for, desiring for. Um, so he began to read about St. Ignatius and this kind of Jesuit, you know, movement and obviously right at the center of this Jesuit um, way of following Jesus was these spiritual practices um, so one of them's like Lectio Divina essentially of, of like being still with Jesus reading some gospel stories and using your imagination to allow Jesus to come to life not just in the story but in your own life so Andrew Garfield started practicing um, Lectio Divina, you know, the prayer of examine, just trying to do the day with Jesus. And then he was interviewed when the film came out about like that journey um, of, of inhabiting the way of following Jesus. Um, let me just read it to you then. He says this. When I asked what stood out in the exercises, this is the journalist. When I asked what stood out in the exercises, he fixed his eyes vaguely on a point in the near distance, wandering off into a place of memory. Then, as if the question had brought him back into the experience itself, he smiled widely and said, what was really easy was falling in love with this person, was falling in love with Jesus. That was the most surprising thing. He felt fell silent at the thought of it, clearly moved to emotion. He clutched his chest just below the sternum, somewhere between his gut and his heart, and what he said next came out through bursts of laughter. God, that was the most remarkable thing, falling in love. How easy it was to fall in love with Jesus. The experience of falling in love with Jesus was most surprising, perhaps, because Garfield, like many people, came to the exercises asking for something else. What he brought to the exercises was not an explicit desire to know Christ, but rather a painful and persistent sense of his own not-enoughness. In other words, emptiness. Like Ignatius before him, Garfield was a young person looking for his own place in the world. And like many of us, beneath this longing, he carried a deep fear, a fear that he wasn't good enough. The main thing I wanted to heal that I brought to Jesus, that I brought to the exercises, was this feeling of not enoughness, Garfield said. This feeling that forever longing for the perfect expression of this thing that is inside each of us, that wound of not enoughness, that wound of feeling that what I have to offer is never enough. I'm guessing you've been there. I know I've been there, and I know many of us are there right now, experiencing this wound of not enoughness, this wilderness experience where you're feeling more insecure than you normally are. You're feeling exhausted, maybe spiritually wrung out, like you're aware of not enoughness. I've got these big jars, but they are empty. Like there is no wine. It doesn't feel like this is a season of blessing. But what would happen if you brought that emptiness towards Jesus? What if you could hear the mother of Jesus say, like, do, do whatever he tells you to do. Like, just do whatever he tells you to do. And in the presence of Jesus, what if he takes you by the hand? Do you know where he's going to lead you? He's going to lead you towards abundance, like new life. Why? Because faithfulness always leads to fruitfulness. 
Emptiness when brought before Jesus leads to fullness. And this is what Jesus says in John 15. And we're going to circle back to the same passage over the next four weeks. It says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And it's really simple. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Like, that is a promise to grab onto right now, right? If you remain in me and I in you, even though all around you might feel like a wilderness experience, you will bear much fruit. 